Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers, but please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm so pleased to be joined on this episode by Dr. Ken Berry. Doctor? Hello, doctor. Hello, doctor. Um, yeah, okay, we'll stop that now. Um, so, <laughs> Dr. Barry, you uh, practice family medicine and you practice in Tennessee. Yes. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Act like uh, maybe we've just met at a dinner party and tell me a little sure. about Dr. Ken Barry. Sure. So, I am a classically trained family physician. Uh, currently board certified in family medicine. I've been practicing for over 20 years. The, the majority of that practice has been in a very rural clinic in Midwestern Tennessee. I've uh, done several years of emergency department work as well, a couple of years of obstetrics as well during my training. And so uh, well-trained in classical allopathic medicine, well-practiced in such um, and only in the last few years, when I became a morbidly obese, pre-diabetic, uh, miserable doctor who was suffering from multiple medical conditions, did I start to kind of peek my nose up out of my rut and go, wait a minute, what's going on here? I'm kind of following the dietary guidelines. Uh, I'm, I'm pre-diabetic. I'm morbidly obese. I was 297 pounds at my heaviest that I know of. And obviously... The, the food pyramid and the my plate and the American Diabetes Association diets ain't working for me anyway. And, uh, you know, when you when you give your your patients medical advice, you always secretly fear that they're non-compliant, which means that they say, yes, doctor, I see this food pyramid handout you gave me and I'm going to go home and eat Cheetos and jelly donuts and ignore that. That's, that's what every doctor's secret fear is, is that our patients aren't listening to us. And I had that same fear as well. I figured the average patient who I would see with diabetes or obesity, they just weren't following my advice, right? But here I had this guy staring back at me from the mirror, and I knew that he had been following my advice because I live with him every day, right? And so I thought, well, maybe I've missed something here. And so I really tightened up with a, with a my plate slash ADA slash DASH diet, which is the American Heart Association's diet. And I was either starving to death every hour of every day, or I was still continuing to gain weight uh, and become more and more diabetic. So at that point, I thought there's got to be something <clears throat> that I wasn't trained, that I'm missing. Uh, I must have slept through an hour or two of my nutrition class in med school. I don't know. And so I started really looking outside of my box looking at, uh, you know, nutrition books, first of all, textbooks, but they just really echoed everything I'd already been doing. So I started looking outside that box even further, and I, I happened upon uh, Dr. Adkins' Diet Revolution. I found the Primal Blueprint by Mark Sisson. I found the Paleo Diet by Lauren Cordain. And I thought, well, everything these guys are saying is exactly backwards to what I've been taught. But Back to what I said earlier, what I've been taught ain't working for me and appears to not be working for the majority of my obese diabetic patients. And so I thought, well, I'll just be the guinea pig. I'll just try these things for a few months and see what happens. And almost immediately, I started to lose weight. The, the chronic inflammation I'd been suffering from started to get better. My hemoglobin A1C started to improve. And as I kind of transitioned from primal to paleo to low carb, then ultimately, I, I started reading about this keto diet, and that, that took me kind of to the next level. I lost even more weight, and I completely reversed my prediabetes. I was down to where I was only overweight, not obese anymore. I went from morbidly obese to, to obese. Now, I'm, uh, you know, then I was just overweight, which is a great victory 
if you were previously morbidly obese. And uh, during my time, the three or four years I've been keto, I've started to read about this carnivore diet. And so for the last 18 months, I've been almost exclusively on a carnivore diet, which is an animal-based or a meat-based diet. And on that diet, I have uh, completely normalized my hemoglobin A1C, my fasting insulin, my uh, C-peptide. My weight is the lowest now at 52 years of age. I got to get that right or or Nisha will correct me. (laughs) At 52, I actually weigh less than I did in my early 30s. And I feel best. uh, I feel better now than I felt in my early 30s. And in fact, I've been out here on the farm all day. Uh, cutting down trees, clearing brush, dragging brush, which if nobody's ever done that, that that's CrossFit squared <laughs> and, and making brush piles. I've been doing that all day. And I, I just broke my fast about an hour ago. I was doing that fasted all day long. Felt great, had good energy. And so for people who are not yet woke to the low-carb keto carnivore fasting thing, you really need to look into that because it is a it is by far the most powerful dietary therapeutic tool I have ever employed as a physician. It's even more powerful than the pharmaceutical tools that most doctors use in their daily work. Uh, there's, I've never found a pill or an injection that I could prescribe to a diabetic that improves and indeed reverses type 2 diabetes quicker than keto and fasting. And so when you find a completely natural nutritional therapeutic strategy that makes all the pharmaceutical therapies pale in comparison, they run and hide their head in shame with with the numbers that they're able to give you versus the numbers you can get from a low-carb ketogenic carnivore diet plus or minus some intermittent fasting. It's, it's, and, you know, many people use the word miraculous because we've been trained for the last few decades to think that the only answers come from, um, you know, pharmaceuticals and from surgical interventions. That's the only place that we get real meaningful therapeutic benefit from. And I and hundreds of thousands of other people who have now reversed their prediabetes and diabetes with keto and fasting, we beg to differ. You used a, a word when you described how you were trained, allopathic, is that the word? Allopathic. Yeah. And that's kind of the, uh, uh, the, I think it was the, the Rockefellers who kind of had an impact on early practice of medicine in, in the United States, at least, because there was a lot of snake oil salesmen. And back in the, you know, the 1910s and 1920s, me and you could just go together and start our own medical school and call it, call it the Barry Ballerstadt School of Medicine. And that was there was no regulation against that. And so in an effort to get rid of all the snake oil and all of the, you know, the foolishness in medicine and actually have a science-based medicine, which I, I think is probably very wise to do, they wound up uh, kind of creating this practice of medicine called allopathic, which is you could think of that the, the opposite of that would be naturopathic. Right. And so they they basically ran all the naturopaths out of town and all all that was left was allopathic medical schools at that point. And there are a few uh, schools of osteopathy, which would be a D.O. degree that are still uh, in existence in the United States. Not many, but uh, that's really the that's considered mainstream medicine. Either you're a, an M.D. or a D.O. or you practice home, homeopathy which I don't, I'm, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that. I'm not saying one's good, one's bad. I'm just kind of quoting the facts as I know them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, like many physicians, you've had your own personal experience that has yeah. transformed how you then practice medicine. Um, and I've, gotten to hear you on a number of occasions um, speak about uh, working with your physicians um, and and you've you've used um, descriptions of the length of the white coat indicating seniority and there's lots of things along that but part of part of what I'm trying to achieve in myself is less us versus them thinking. I, I, sure. it, 
And, and so one of the phrases that you've used that sticks with me is it's not your fault, but it is your problem. Yes. So unfortunately, and please correct me if um, I'm misperceiving things or you see it in a different way. A lot of times today when people end up with what I understand to be um, a number of manifestations of metabolic syndrome. So in other words, type 2 diabetes and a lot of other metabolic illnesses. And certainly excessive body fat, call it whatever you want. People look at people with those conditions and say, it's your fault. You didn't follow the advice or you're a lazy glutton. And, and so in, in your book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, you have a subtitle about medical myths. And these, um, I'm not that kind of doctor. So if, if people could hear a physician talk about just a few of those myths, and I think that then opens up people to say, well, wait a minute, if that's not right, then what about these other things? So sure. what would you say are the medical myths that you want people to hear here? You're not going to convince anybody in an hour, but maybe plant the seed that then grows and starts breaking up the sidewalk to mix sure. metaphors. Sure. And so there's about 25 myths or lies that I talk about in the book. And I think probably the ones that uh, would would help people the most, the, the quickest would be uh, the, the myth or the lie that eating multiple servings of whole grain foods is really good for human beings, that it, it protects you from cancer, it, it protects you from obesity, it protects you from diabetes. That, that's a big fat lie that that's been uh, never has it been borne out in controlled research that whole grains do anything except help you poop a lot because of the fiber. Uh, there, there is no control research on this. And, and, the, and the problem is, is it's been accepted as self-evident truth for so many decades that no, you sound foolish if you argue with it, right? But again, I would, I would point you back to the hundreds of thousands of people who are completely grain-free now eating a ketogenic diet, who feel great, they have more energy than they've had, uh, you know, that they, than they had 10 years ago. They have reversed their, their type two diabetes. If they have type one diabetes, they've, they've improved it so much that they have a completely normal A1C now. People with severe chronic medical conditions ranging from heartburn to rosacea to psoriasis to eczema to chronic arthritis pain, all of these things get better when you remove grains from your diet instead of adding more grains to your, your diet. And so that's one of the lies that there's an entire chapter I devote to that. Another lie that I think is very insidious that's become very popular with doctors in general and dermatologists in particular is that you should avoid the sun as much as you possibly can. And if you must be out in the sun, you have to slather on SPF, I don't know, 400 or however high it's up to now. Welding and, grade. And try, yeah, and try to avoid all sun exposure. Try to get no UV radiation whatsoever from the sun because that's going. If you if you get UV radiation from the sun, that's going to skyrocket your chances of developing skin cancer. And the research that proves this, in air quotes, if you start to really dig into it, which I did for when I was writing the book, it's farcical. It's it's beyond idiotic. It's just ridiculous. Uh, some of this research was done on donated foreskins. Young males who had, had circumcisions, they would take the foreskin and they would then experiment on it. And they were not able to give these foreskins skin cancers. All they could do with, with just huge doses of ultraviolet radiation would be to make this foreskin, which as some of the listeners might have guessed, is now dead tissue. It's no longer living human tissue, right? They could cause some some biochemical changes in that that looked like the first step towards skin cancer. And so that's the kind of research that this is based on. It's foolishness. And so human beings have lived in the sun for our entirety. 
of existence on this planet. We've actually been in the sun so long, we've learned how <clears throat> to make vitamin D from sun exposure, almost like plants uh, make, make sugars from photosynthesis, from exposure to the sun. We know that nitrous oxide goes up in our skin when we're exposed to the sun, which lowers blood pressure. All these good things happen from sun exposure, but yet the average person who just listens to their doctor or they read an article in Good Housekeeping or they watch you know, an episode of Good Morning America and they see some dermatologist saying you need to hide in a cave as many hours as you can. And if you must go out in the sun, you know, completely shield your entire body from this very dangerous star that we orbit because, you know, it's been proven beyond shadow of a doubt that any sun exposure is dangerous for your skin. And it's, it's foolishness based on nothing. Uh, another myth or lie that I try to debunk in the book is the calories in, calories out, that, that, that if you count calories and you try to burn more calories than you eat, which means eat less and move more, that that is the secret to losing weight, to reversing your obesity and, and to uh, approaching an ideal body weight. The problem is, is that 99% of people who try this fail at it and they fail over and over and over. And they'll try the Weight Watchers diet, which is a calorie restriction diet. They'll try Jenny, Jenny Craig, which is a calorie restriction diet. There's all these different flavors or brands of a calorie restriction diet, but in the end, it's movement, move more, eat less. And so basically a semi-starvation diet, and you're supposed to then continue to starve yourself for the rest of your life in order to maintain an ideal body weight. Well, there's a reason that 99% of people fail at this. There's a reason that Weight Watchers has been a profitable company since 1969, and we still have an obesity epidemic, but yet somehow they're still making a profit. They're obviously not getting paid for, uh, for results, right? So that, that turns out that's just not the case. And there's actually big uh, medical studies, including the Women's Health Initiative, which showed that after years of calorie restriction, the women in the study lost almost no weight. Uh, and so it's, it's been shown in, in controlled research, that's not true. But the problem is, is it's been very fashionable for the last few decades. And you know, uh, you, you're a lot older than I am, Peter, but you know, man, your age, you understand that once something has went through an entire generation of humanity. So basically your, your mother was born, her mother taught her this, and then she taught you this, that becomes ingrained in, in, in an almost magical way for human beings, right? Because if your grandmama told you something and your mama confirmed it, and then your doctor confirmed it, that's it, that's bedrock. You can't even argue with that, right? And that's what's happened with the calories in, calories out myth. That's what's happened with the sun myth. That's what's happened with the whole grains myth and all of the other myths that I talk about in Lies My Doctor Told Me, they become ingrained over a complete generation. And at that point, it becomes almost, it's, it's almost like saying to someone, no, your mama didn't know what she was talking about. I'm sorry, but your mama was wrong. And you know, in some parts of the country, that can lead to more words and harsh and, words, you know, yes, harsh words. That's right. <laughs> and so, and I, I love the way that you're trying to uh, enlarge the herd without saying, no, you're wrong. No, that's not right. You know, it, this is not us against them. It's really should be all of us trying to help each other. And I, and that's I agree with that 100%. And that's what, how I try to practice medicine every day both in the clinic and online is, hey, you know, this is not me judging you. This is not me judging your mom. This is me trying to open a gate and give you a pathway to the health that not only do you deserve, but the health that I, I figure you probably daydream about, the good mm -hmm. health that you, you think you're never going to enjoy again. Yeah, it's right down this path. You've just got to walk through the gate and give it a try. So some other things that we could add to the list, but um, we don't have to go into them in detail. But um, the idea that saturated fat causes heart disease, that animal products cause cancer, that uh, dietary cholesterol raises your cholesterol level in your blood, that in fact, right. the, the total cholesterol or your LDL cholesterol are meaningful indicators of risk. Um, and and there's, a, there's a long list of these, which... Okay, you begin to sound like, you know, there, there's something wrong here, but there's abundant evidence and we can certainly 
provide references and citations for people to investigate further. Um, but, and, and again, it's not us, them, trying to understand, put myself into the position of someone newly graduated from medical school. They've got their sheepskin. Do they still give sheepskins? Is that permissible I, anymore? I think, it, I think it's probably just uh, copy paper now, yeah. Okay, copy paper. Um, that you, you're, you're graduating, you've got a debt now, undoubtedly. Um, maybe you have a family. You've now going to launch yourself into this, either practice with patients or go into research. If you're going into research, chances are that's largely on the reputation of your major professors or yes. the institutions you're coming from. So you're probably circumspect about questioning a lot of what they've said. Sure. If you're going into business, you're worried about your risk and your income and these things. So a lot of that is completely understandable. The problem is we're dealing with human lives here. Right. And, and so one of the comments that I think Dave Feldman gave me, the pivotal patient, I think is his um, name for that patient that impacts like in Dave Unwin uh, or, or Eric Westman or Ted Naiman. I mean, in your case, it was you. <laughs> in those yep. cases, it's another one. So um, not everyone feels comfortable arguing with their physicians. There's a really weird seemingly relationship between physicians and patients in the United States. Yep. And maybe that's some things that you could offer some perspective on to help people work with their physician to Absolutely. undergo this journey? So there is a, very, a, a large percentage of doctors who practice using a patriarchal model where, where basically, and, and legally there, there is some truth to that because doctors practice medicine, their relationship to patients is fiduciary. So there's actually a legal relationship there. And in the eyes of the law, it is much like a parent-child relationship. The parent has certain duties to the child, right? You, you, you have a duty not to abuse them. You have a duty not to abandon them or drop them down a well. You have, you have certain duties that are expected of you as a parent. And in the eyes of the law, the practice of medicine very much resembles a parent-child relationship. Uh, I do not think, however, that the actual practice of medicine with between one doctor and one patient should be patriarchal at all. And but 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 that's a big word, right? But it's easier for a doctor to practice patriarchal medicine. And uh, in, indeed, in my early years in the emergency department, I was famous for saying, "No, no, no! You need to shut up and do what I tell you to do, or you're going to die." And that, that's a very patriarchal model. And I think there's a place for that in certain situations in medicine. But when you're talking about the care of chronic medical diseases, there's no emergency. There's no, you know, oh my God, we have to do this right now dynamic going on. Then I don't think there's any place for a, for a father relationship, uh, you know, the, a, a parental relationship. The, do the doctor's your daddy or mom and you are their child. You are to obey and not ask questions. But many doctors evoke that model because it's easier to practice medicine because you can just imagine a, uh, a doctor's visit is over very quickly if a patient has printed off a lot of stuff and brought, you know, off the internet, God forbid, Dr. Google, and they've brought this and they have a list of questions. And I take the lead as the, as the, the, the patriarch and say, no, no, all that stuff's foolish. You just do what I say. Here's your prescription. I'll see you in six months. I just walked out of that room in four minutes. Right now, I, I've got plenty of time to either take a break or go see the next patient. And, and so I can either catch up or get ahead. Right. But if I, as a medical partner, which is what I think your healthcare provider should be with you, if I see that you've printed out lots of stuff off the Internet and I say this patient is really motivated, 
right? To, they're very motivated to figure out what's going on with their body. And they're very motivated as a patient to, to try to get healthy. If I, instead of seeing that as a, as a uh, frustration, if I see that as a, as a sign, a beacon, this person really is interested in their health. And I sit down and I spend 15 or 20 minutes going through what they printed out and either pointing out, no, this is from just a foolish website. That, that, but now this, on the other hand, this is a good thing. That's going to waste, a, uh, waste in air mm-hmm. quotes, a lot of my time as a doctor, right? <clears throat> I would opine that that uh, time is not wasted at all. That time is very well spent for both the doctor and for the patient and is going to forge a relationship and a bond between, in, that, in that provider-patient duo that makes it a very, very powerful thing that can actually start to reverse chronic health conditions that previously doctors didn't think could be reversed. They only thought they could be treated. And so I would tell anyone out there, you absolutely are a partner with your doctor. Now, obviously your doctor's got all the training right, that they, they got through medical school and residency, but you as the patient have the training of living in your body all of your life and experiencing your symptoms and experiencing things that made it better and things that made it worse. So if you found a diet or you found a particular lifestyle that makes your symptoms of whatever chronic disease you have improve, that's important. And you should share that with your doctor. And if your doctor discounts that or uh, just laughs at that and and just tries to ignore you and move on, that's a huge red flag that your doctor's practicing the patriarchal model of I'm your parent, you're my child, you need to shut up and do what I say. But uh, medicine is not an exact science, okay? As much as healthcare providers would love for all their patients to believe that this is all settled science, it's all black and white, it's in the book, we, we know this, there's no doubt about any of this. That's not true at all, okay? Uh, that's why we call it the practice of medicine or the art of medicine, is because there are many, the, the function of the human body that we still have no damn idea why that does that or how that does that. that and you only have to go three or four layers deep into the biochemistry or the cell and molecular biology before you become very aware as a, as a doctor, uh, we don't know how the hell that works. We have no idea. Honestly, we do not know. Maybe next year or 10 years from now, we'll, we'll figure out the mechanism, but currently we don't know. And so when, you, when a doctor's practicing an art like modern medicine, the doctor, even more so than the patient, should be very aware that there is a, there's a bottom to our medical knowledge underneath which you could scribble the words magic because anytime (laughs) something does something and we don't know why it does that, that's magic until you figure it out. And so the human body in in very many ways at a biochemical level is still magic. We have no idea why it does what it does. And so then it becomes very disrespectful and not very helpful for a doctor to discount some diet that you've happened upon and you've actually been trying it for a month or two and your blood sugars are better and your heartburn's better and your psoriasis is better for that doctor to discount that diet uh, that dietary intervention or that lifestyle intervention and say just that's all foolishness i don't want to hear about dr google just do what i say to me that's that is the ultimate form of disrespect a a healthcare provider can show to a patient and if you're the patient in that situation that's a huge red flag that you're probably not going to be able to establish a partnership with that healthcare provider. And you should perhaps uh, get the yellow pages out. Do they still make such a thing? Mm-hmm. Or is it online yeah. now? And let your fingers do the walking and find another healthcare provider. Because that, if someone is, if so, if a, if a healthcare provider is locked into the patriarchal uh, way of practicing and they are not open to you having an opinion and to listening to your feedback, that's not a therapeutic partnership. That's not a therapeutic relationship, in my opinion. So if, if you were to cast your eyes across healthcare in the United States, and maybe we need to set this back in February, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. and, and, and say, what percent of the healthcare industry 
or healthcare usage is addressing what we've been calling metabolic or chronic diseases versus the um, acute sort of interventions, the broken, the emergency room kind of, of medicine. Sure. Yeah. And so if you fall off the house and you've got a compound femoral fracture, you need modern healthcare. If you are, if you develop type one diabetes and, and uh, ketoacidosis, you need an intensive care unit. So in no way do I want people to think that I'm bad mouthing modern healthcare or that I'm denigrating uh, the, the practitioners of modern healthcare. In certain situations, that's absolutely what you need and nothing else will do. But when it comes to chronic medical conditions, chronic metabolic conditions, uh, doctors are historically and currently very, very bad at uh, even managing them and, and keeping them from getting worse, not even to mention reversing those. And so metabolic syndrome is this curious thing where you have high blood pressure, you have high triglycerides, you have a waist to height ratio that's greater than 0.5, you have high blood sugar, and I would opine that we could add chronically high levels of insulin to that milieu. Uh, and that's metabolic syndrome. And so if you have metabolic syndrome, if you have uh, three of any of the, of the five things, and I would say there's six, then you have, you're, you have the formal diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. Now, so what? What does that matter? Well, that puts you at increased risk of diabetes and all of the complications that come from it. It puts you at increased risk of hypertension and all of the complications that come from that. And when I say all of the complications, there are hundreds for, for both diabetes and hypertension. You are at increased risk of having heart attack and stroke. You're also, a lot of people don't realize this, you are at a greatly increased risk of having uh, increased risk of developing cancer, especially breast cancer, prostate cancer, and some of the more common cancers. They are intimately linked with having metabolic syndrome. And so that's why I've made so many YouTube videos about the metabolic syndrome and all of the um, symptoms of it and signs of it. Because when people understand, oh, I'm developing metabolic syndrome, there are actually dietary and lifestyle interventions that you can employ yourself at home for free that will immediately stop the progression of metabolic syndrome and indeed reverse your metabolic syndrome back to a condition of normal, okay? And, and I know Peter knows this, but I'll, I'll tell everyone, if you lined up every adult in the United States right now and you measured all five or six of the markers of metabolic syndrome, there's only 12% of the adults in the United States who do not have at least one marker of metabolic syndrome. And so uh, this is beyond an epidemic of, of, of metabolic syndrome. It is now, you're, you're now officially abnormal if you don't have one or two markers of metabolic syndrome. So if, if you're overweight and you have high blood pressure and you have high blood sugar and high triglycerides, that's normal in the United States currently, even though it is, it is all of those are markers for aggressive dangerous metabolic disease, that's now the norm in the United States and indeed in most uh, countries in the world that have modern food and modern medicine. How, how, when did we become okay with abnormal and sick being normal? If you, if you define normal as what the majority of the people have as average, is average normal? Well, not in this case, it's not. But in most cases, you would expect average should be close to normal. But it's not, and it's because of our food, and and that's the big, big problem here, and that's why I'm, the majority of my YouTube videos, I'm talking about some foods you should or some foods you shouldn't, because that's that's actually the foundational answer of stopping the progression of your metabolic syndrome and ultimately of reversing it completely. So just to add little, because it's something that's growing in my awareness, and that is that this is a global phenomenon. Yes. It, it looks different in different countries, obviously, yes. low and middle income countries. But again, part of the myth is that this is the result of affluence. 
and right. that people don't Absolutely have to work as hard, right? So, and and we have all this fast food, so, you know, whatever, 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 uh, which always devolves down to it's the burger patty, not the bushel of French fries or the half gallon of carbonated sugar right. water. It's always That's the right. beef. Um, yep. So Actually, the, the highest rates of increase in diabetes and pre-diabetes in the world are in uh, Asian countries and in the, the Indian continent. That's, that's where the, the largest increase in diabetes. And these are in, this is in people who are predominantly thin, right? And so you, we have to stop thinking of obesity as the cause of all of these metabolic problems. Obesity is just one of the symptoms that you have an underlying metabolic dysfunction. It's not the cause. And there are many prominent healthcare providers out there who will say, well, well, no, obesity is the cause of type 2 diabetes. Absolutely untrue, not unsubstantiated, never proven. And indeed, we see people start to reverse their type 2 diabetes and still be very, very overweight. And so it, it's gotten so cloudy. The water's so, so muddy, Peter, that that even very smart healthcare providers can't tease out what's causing what, because, you know, obesity and, and type two diabetes are very intimately related. They're highly associated, associated, highly correlated, but that does not mean that one is causing the other. Mm-hmm. It's very likely. And in my, in my opinion, probable that something else is causing both of them. And that's why it appears that they're so closely related is because they're both caused by the same improper diet. Okay. And that, that critical part of, um, there, there's so many layers and layers, you know, it it starts with the grain of sand and then the oyster lays down all these, unfortunately, it's not a pearl we end up with. It's, it's more like a gallstone or, uh, which could be a whole nother subject. Um, so there's just, people need to understand or at least be aware of this as a legitimate controversy that there's a lot of research behind it. It's not a fringe thing. It's not even new and faddish in that sense of being new. It's something that goes back decades um, that many of what we believe today popularly are settled issues were settled politically, not scientifically. Yeah, and there are many people out there who don't believe in a low-carb or a ketogenic or a carnivore lifestyle who want to call us uh, science deniers or anti-science. And that, that nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, science is never fully settled. If, you're, if you really believe in the scientific method, and you really believe that all of those steps are ethical and moral, which I do, then anytime you say that the science on this or that uh, is settled, you're walking on very dangerous, very brittle ground, unless you're talking about something like gravity or the, you know, some, some uh, physics concept where the science is pretty darn settled. But when you get out into the more uh, human science, uh, sciences like nutrition and medicine and psychology and, and psychiatry, and you start talking about settled science, you are building your professional house on some very loose sand because it's even intimate that the science is settled when it comes to any medical or psychological topic is foolishness. In my opinion, I don't think we're anywhere close to discovering the ultimate truth truth of truths when it comes to metabolic health. I, uh, the opposite of, of skeptical is gullible. And yes. we've, we've had far too much um, for far too long that we've taken on faith from people who in the fullness of time turns out were not as well grounded as they represented themselves as being. Yes. And often they had at least a strong appearance of conflict of interest. In some cases, I would push it further, but let's be polite and say at least it looks bad. Um, so, So we have a system 
And certainly being in Tennessee and the Southeast, I mean, that's the, the diabetes belt of the yes. United States. Um, and, and yet we have this opportunity and what I hope happens is people from the livestock industry and the cattle industry learn more about this because it's my belief, and I don't think that we're going to disagree on this, that people can eat more of the products of those industries yes. than is the current recommendation and see dramatic improvement in their metabolic health. Oh, I totally agree. And one of the most egregious things that medicine does is it gives people this false solution. Okay, so it's true that there are many people out there who literally live on Pepsi Cola and jelly donuts and Doritos. That's true. They live the, the first 20 or 30 years of their life. And then when they wake up one day and they're 300 pounds and diabetic and, and have high triglycerides and, you know, every marker of metabolic syndrome. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm going to die young of a heart attack or a stroke. I, I'm very unhealthy. I've got this woman I love now, and I've got these two kids I love, and I want to be able to provide for them. So this person who was previously completely unmotivated when it came to health and nutrition, right? We can all agree on that. Now they become motivated, right? Gutturally, at the, at the, in the depths of their soul, they want to protect this spouse and protect these kids. And so they go to the doctor, and they're like, Doc, I got to get healthy. I'm so unhealthy. Maybe they had chest pain. Maybe they had shortness of breath. They had, they had an ER visit. And their life flashed before them, right? So they are, they are the most ready they are, will ever be in their life to hear the truth, to hear how can I fix what I've done? I, this is my fault. I did it to myself. But now how do I fix it? And instead of offering a nutritional solution that includes ancestrally appropriate foods like meat and eggs and butter, they are offered the my plate or the food pyramid or the American Diabetes Association diet. These people, are, they tell them, you got to stop the Doritos and jelly donuts. You got to stop the Pepsi, okay? I want you to start drinking fresh squeezed non-GMO orange juice instead of the Pepsi. I want you to start eating whole grain cereal instead of eating the jelly donuts, right? And I want you to start eating whole grain bread and lots of uh, ripe fruit instead of the Doritos. Margarine on the toast. That's right. Stop that stupid butter. Put margarine on there. Eat lots of potatoes because, you know, they're, they, and eat with the skin on because that's, mm. that's more healthy. And so this person walks away. And remember, this is, is the most motivated they will ever be to reclaim their health and to become that person that they, they once wanted to be, but got temporarily sidetracked. But now they're back. They're 100% motivated. They are given this crippling nutrition advice because what's going to happen when they go home and they implement this? They throw away all the Pepsi and get gallons of orange juice. It's the same. There's no difference. They throw away all the jelly donuts and get they get Special K and they get Frosted Flakes and they get uh, Total and, and Raisin Bran and Wheaties. Wheaties are the mm. breakfast of champions. They get all these things. It's no better than the jelly donut right? And then they start eating lots of sweet potatoes and lots of Irish potatoes and lots of beans and lots of, lots of fruit. That's no better than the Doritos, maybe a little less bad, but still not good. And so what's going to happen when they go back for their six-month follow-up to, to get all their labs rechecked? Their labs are going to be no better, and their weight is going to be no better. And so you have basically that healthcare provider who had a chance to literally transform that person's life from a state of metabolic illness back to just preeminent health. What an opportunity. That gives me goosebumps thinking about being at that moment in time with that person right after they've had that chest pain and, and the heart attack's been ruled out. Good news. You haven't had a heart attack. Bad news. You're diabetic and you have high blood pressure and you're going to die 10 or 15 years sooner. That moment is such a beautiful thing for a doctor to kind of stumble into. And if you, if, if in that moment, that, that pristine divine moment that you have to literally give this person a 180 degree turnaround on their health, you give them this, this stupid advice of, of fruit juices and fruits and whole grains instead of, 
I want you to eat for the next month. I want you to eat beef, butter, bacon, and eggs. Nothing but that for 30 days. And that's going to start to turn this whole thing around. And then after that, we can add some, some other animal-based foods and maybe a few plant-based foods back in. Can you imagine when that person, if, if the doctor, like I say, had said beef, butter, bacon, and eggs for a month, and then we'll talk, we'll talk after that. When they recheck their labs and when they remeasure their waistline and when they check their blood sugar, it's going to be a night and day difference. And they're actually going to be moving towards that health that they dreamed about when they thought they were dying on the emergency department table. And they were making those promises to the creator. If you'll just let me get through this, I'll change everything because the false change that the healthcare provider offered them doesn't do a damn thing to help them attain their health goals. And that's, that's what really infuriates me is when people are truly ready because, you know, if you go to the bar and you're yelling at all the alcoholics to quit drinking, none of those guys are ready. They're not, they're not motivated. They, they just want you to shut up. But if you've got someone who's 100% on, they're focused, it's you and them. Yes, doctor, tell me what to do and I will do it, whatever you say. And they've got a spouse sitting right there beside them going, you damn straight, he's going to do what you say because I'm going to ensure it. If they were given proper nutrition advice and proper mm-hmm. lifestyle advice at that key moment. Can you imagine the, the seemingly miraculous changes that would happen? But what you wind up with is a patient who comes back in three months, who's frustrated because they know that their pants is the same damn size as it was three months ago. Mm-hmm. Their blood sugars are the same. They don't feel any better, right? Nothing's changed. And so they, they've had three months of utter frustration because of the ignorant nutrition advice given by their healthcare provider. And and then they're accused of lying when they and say that the they've doctor, done everything. Yeah. So, right. so they assume that they're non-compliant. Yeah. And so not, a, and then you were right back to the glutton sloth. You're not trying, yeah. you're lazy, you're just eating junk. This is all your fault. I can't help you if you're not going to listen to me. But the problem is, Peter, they did listen and they mm-hmm. did. They started drinking a gallon of orange juice a day. They ate cereal five bowls a day. They used skim milk, not whole fat milk. And they, they got rid of the butter and got margarine. They did all that and nothing got better because the advice is wrong. Well, and then to flip it the other way, I mean, all of that, yes. What's that like, though, to go through your career and realize that all of your patients really don't ever get better? At some level, there's got to be some kind of bother, some irritation at some level of awareness that just burns you out after a while. It, it does. And it's very common for doctors to become completely burned out and change professions. Suicide, the rate of suicide is quite high in healthcare providers. And I would opine this is part of the reason. What it, what it leaves providers with is that a very negative sense of humanity. You become very frustrated and very jaded and, and, and you, you almost begin to dislike your patients because you know, in air quotes, they're not going to follow your advice, even though they are trying to follow it. You know they're not going to get better. You know, really, your entire career, you haven't really had a meaningful impact on anyone. And I'm, I'm, I'm uh, containing this to primary health care, right? So family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, that sort of thing. Not the, of course, orthopedic surgeons, ER docs, they, you can see this guy was dead. Now he ain't dead. I did a good job. Yay me, right? But when it comes to chronic health care in the, in the primary care fields, it's thankless because you maybe have one per, one patient out of 100 who is willing to starve themselves for the rest of their life. And that nutrition advice will work if you starve yourself for the rest of your life, right? So if you only eat 800 calories a day of the orange juice and the special K and the, and the potatoes with the skin on, then yes, you will lose weight and you will slowly including improve a great your metabolic deal of, markers. In, including a great deal of lean body mass, which then leads a, to... Uh, including losing bone, muscle, uh, ten, tendon, everything else that you don't want to lose. That's exactly right. But 99 out of those 100 are going to fail that because they're going to they're going to eat what you told them to eat and they're going to do what every human should do. They're going to eat until they're full, just like every other animal on this planet. 
Human beings eat till they're full. That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. But when you tell people, no, stop eating while you're still hungry, that's like that's like telling people to hold your breath even though you have air craving. Well, it's the neck, yeah. Foolish. So my my version of that, doctor, is the next time you have diarrhea, use willpower. <laughs> right, just so, willing to stop. Yeah, yeah. that'll work <laughs> for a while. But um, yeah, and that's a that's a great analogy because hunger is a physiologically normal thing. People hate their hunger, and they hate it that they feel hunger, and they hate themselves for being hungry. Hunger's not bad. Hunger's not the enemy. Hunger's not the devil. Hunger is a normal physiological thing. Mm-hmm. If you're eating the proper foods, that is. But but your hunger still is not the evil. The evil is the improper foods that, that you're eating before and that your doctor's now recommending. Mm-hmm. Your hunger's not the problem. And 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 that could launch us and perhaps should in a future episode to talk yes. about things like um, why when people when me- most people talk about protein, they don't really know what they're talking about. Uh, I would when love people, to discuss that with you. Yes, sir. Uh, and and we could even talk about calories the same way. I mean, this sure. idea that, you know. Um, that that's something later that, you know, what's on a food label bears, we don't know. I mean, it's an average value and, right. you know, about averages. Um, one of my favorite quotes from an ag meeting was that uh, on average, the sorry, um, the average human being has one breast and one testicle, but you don't see many of them <laughs> wandering around. So yes, there's a problem with averages, especially when we start trying to take population-based recommendations and devolve them down to individual recommendations and, and practices. So I totally agree. Um, it's, it's great spending time with you. I'm glad to give you a little chance to, you know, breathe after you're, uh, doing some land clearing. I'm proud of you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, I've asked you a bunch of questions, uh, give you a chance to turn the table on me before we sign off on this episode. Um, let's see. I, I've got an extra chainsaw. Are you available in the next few weeks to, to come out oh, to Tennessee and help me clear? My... Some, I'm trying to create some silvo pasture here and I need an extra chainsaw. So if you, um, uh, yeah, no, you want somebody that knows what they're doing with that particular <laughs> <laughs> tool, doctor. Um, yeah, yeah, give, give a, give a, what, give a monkey a chainsaw. Don't make him a <laughs> logger and make him dangerous. <laughs> that may be true in my case as well. I don't know. That remains to be seen. I haven't received any injuries yet, but hey, you never know. Uh, so long as you're wearing the appropriate PPE while you're using a chainsaw then. Yeah, which in my case is gloves and blue jeans. I hope that's enough. I don't know. I hope so too, because the the gnarly gnarly injuries from chainsaws. Um, <laughs> I've I've sewed up several in the ER over the years. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I always make fun of them too. Uh oh, karma. Oh, <laughs> right. Yes, sir. I okay. think I'll just go home now and read the Bible or something. I think I'm done with the chainsaw for today. After you pointed that out, thanks, Ben. Okay. Uh, you're welcome. Hey, doctor, anytime. Um, I'm pleased. Uh, um, Ken, thank you very much uh, for the time and the conversation. And I look forward to the next time, especially look forward to the next time that we can meet at a Brazilian oh, steakhouse. Yes, and, yes uh, please. Uh, talk about why eating meat won't kill us and it won't kill the planet. So between the two of us, I think we can help people understand that. I do too. Thanks so much.